In recent years, researchers have made progress in figuring out the complex factors that lead to Alzheimer's disease. But the root cause, or causes, of Alzheimer's are still pretty much a mystery. That's especially true for people who get Alzheimer's even though they lack the specific gene mutations we know can play a role in early onset of the disease. This is a big gap in knowledge for research to address because 99% of Alzheimer's patients don't have these gene mutations. A new study provides insights into what's causing the disease in the vast majority of people who get Alzheimer's even though they don't have the genetic mutations. I'm Matt Fuchs, and this is Making Sense of Science by Leaps.org. The research, published in Nature Communications, points to this culprit, a breakdown over time in the brain's system for clearing waste, an issue that seems to happen in some people as they get older. The research was led by Michael Glickman, a biologist at Technion University in Israel. He told me about his approach to studying how this breakdown occurs in the brain, and how he tested a potential treatment for fixing the problem at its earliest stages. The, the sporadic form has not gotten the attention it deserves, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's more difficult, right? And the reason it's more difficult is because just as the name implies, it's sporadic. We don't know the underlying cause. That's Dr. Glickman talking about the sporadic form of Alzheimer's. Sporadic is the term that he and other scientists use to describe when people develop Alzheimer's due to environmental, lifestyle, or certain genetic risk factors, rather than the familial form of Alzheimer's in which people have the specific gene mutations. A quick refresher on what we know about Alzheimer's. We know that the main signs of the disease are clusters of misfolded proteins that show up in between nerve cells and twisted tangles of proteins inside nerve cells in patients' brains. These clusters, called amyloid plaques and tau tangles, seem to play some role in getting in the way of important cognitive functions, like memory. The brain's system for clearing this waste is called the ubiquitin system. It puts a tag on the unwanted proteins, sort of like a grocery store worker going through the aisle putting tags on products that have spoiled. Now, imagine if the grocery worker goes rogue and just starts wandering aimlessly through the aisle not doing his job. You'd start seeing lots of spoiled food remaining on the shelves, not getting put in the trash. That's pretty bad, but now also imagine that instead of being able to fire this rogue employee, the manager of the market just brings in more workers to do the job, who themselves eventually start wandering up and down the aisle along with the first employee, instead of actually doing their jobs. This is my analogy for what Dr. Glickman thought was happening in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. They start making a damaged version of the system for clearing waste. This flawed version is called UBB plus one. Because it's damaged, it stops doing its job. When that happens, you get lots of trash, or misfolded proteins, cluttering up the brain. And the system itself, like the grocery worker wandering through the aisle, starts taking up additional space in the brain. Dr. Glickman explains. That there is a system for removing damaged proteins, and that's the ubiquitin proteasome system. But if ubiquitin itself is damaged, who removes the damaged ubiquitin? This damaged ubiquitin looks almost identical to the normal ubiquitin. There's only one amino acid difference. And that amino acid difference means that it can't do its job, but nevertheless, it still looks like ubiquitin. So it starts cluttering up the system. It takes up space. And it's a mild effect. This is what's ironic. People have always been looking for very dramatic effects 
we realize that Alzheimer is a mild effect by definition. If it wasn't mild, we would get Alzheimer at the age of one or two or three, or we wouldn't even be born, right? This has to be a mild effect. People have been looking at it completely wrong. They've been looking for something dramatic. This protein is not that toxic, but it's not removed. It's particularly not removed from nerve cells. To test this theory, the researchers developed a small, ingenious model of the human brain called an organoid. To make this model, the researchers took human stem cells and developed them into brain cells. Then they engineered these cells to produce slightly higher levels of the damaged form of ubiquitin that doesn't do its job of clearing waste. What happened next was amazing. The hallmarks of Alzheimer's, like the misfolded proteins, appeared in these organoids. We engineer them to express slightly higher levels of UVB plus one than they're supposed to. Uh, and lo and behold, we got a neuronal platform in a dish of healthy human cells that start uh, replicating the hallmarks of Alzheimer's. They, they produce both plaques and tangles to the similar extent and, some, and in some cases even more than the genetic form. Uh, and so this is a real breakthrough because it's the first experimental system that actually managed to replicate both molecular hallmarks or cellular hallmarks of Alzheimer's uh, disease uh, nerve cells uh, without any genetic mutation. The scientific community, of course, was a bit upset and didn't really believe us for a long time, so it took us a long time to publish this uh, paper, but eventually it was published. Dr. Glickman further tested his theory by seeing if he could get rid of these hallmarks of Alzheimer's by doing something to fix the ubiquitin system. He wanted to see if this would even work when he gave the brain cells a specific genetic mutation like people have in the familial form of the disease. Using the mini organoid brains, he created the specific genetic mutation for Alzheimer's, and then he engineered an RNA molecule that specifically silences the disruption of the ubiquitin waste removal system and we ameliorated the condition, they have less plaques and tangles. So we actually uh, demonstrate in the, in the paper proof of concept of a potential uh, drug prototype uh, that can improve the situation, or at least the, the cellular situation of human neurons that basically are programmed to have Alzheimer's and we can kind of re reprogram them to have less Alzheimer's. Dr. Glickman and other Alzheimer's researchers can now examine what's causing the problem with the ubiquitin system for clearing waste. And we can use it to screen various uh, drug targets, various environmental assaults, oxidative stress, uh, omega-3, whatever, I mean, whatever you want, drug targets, siRNA molecules like what we're doing, and uh, see whether it affects the amount of plaques and tangles. It's upstream, it's there, so we don't need to look anymore at plaques and tangles, we can look at what is causing damages to the ubiquitin proteasome system. And the mini-brain organoids will play a key role in finding the answers to these questions instead of testing Alzheimer's therapies in mice. Dr. Glickman says this is a major improvement because mice are notoriously tough to draw conclusions from when studying Alzheimer's. Until now, basically, the scientific community kind of demanded that we test things in mice uh, as a way of, as a proof of concept. And furthermore, the FDA also mandated, so you cannot do a clinical trial in humans before you did a preclinical study, typically in mice, uh, sometimes in other rodents, and in a few rare cases, also some other animal, but typically in mice. Now, you can genetically engineer them to be what we call humanized mice, so we, you express human APP, then you have to express human tau, and then you have to express mutants in human APP and mutants in uh, presenilin, which is a protein which basically processes APP. So we're talking about multiple 
genetic mutations, which no human even has. The timing of this research couldn't be better. A policy change at the end of last year by the federal government recognizes the usefulness of other approaches besides testing animals, such as Dr. Glickman's organoids. The near future is also looking bright for RNA-based approaches, like the one that was used in Dr. Glickman's research. The Nobel Prize was just awarded for this RNA-based approach, which further raised the profile for a range of uses, including Alzheimer's, Dr. Glickman told me. The development of the RNA-based vaccines, COVID, however, the implications are much, much broader. This is the first time that an RNA-based drug received the you know, FDA approval and is accepted as a, as a treatment means that these drugs can enter, can be administered, they're generally safe, they can enter into cells, and they can, and they can function. So the, the purpose of the RNA vac- uh, vaccines was different, but the RNA molecule is the same. And part of the success of the vaccines was the packaging in, li- in a lipid uh, carrier that basically evades the immune system and then allows them to fuse with cells and enter into cells. So... I think the timing is right ripe now for thinking of other types of RNA-based drugs. In our case, it would be possibly an siRNA, not an mRNA, but in the end, it's still the same molecule. It's an, it's an RNA, it's a small molecule, it's incredibly cheap to synthesize. I mean, it's lit- literally like printing money. You can buy a small synthesizer, you, you plug in the code for which sequence you want, and it's printed. That's it. It's, it's amazing. Of course, you then have to do some modifications. You have to make sure that it's not inducing an immune response. It's not inducing uh, inflammation. RNA as a as a base for a drug is now accepted uh, and it's effective. It's generally uh, safe and it can be packaged. The, the problem is not getting it to where it's supposed to get. It's just to make sure that the that the whole everything comes together. You know, the, the correct sequence, the correct packaging, and the correct target. So, so I'm actually uh, optimistic uh, that that this could be entering clinical trials within a few years. So what's Dr. Glickman's number one theory for what might be driving the issues with ubiquitin? Suspect number one is the trash cans of the brain cells, which are called lysosomes. In our grocery worker analogy, it's possible that our grocery worker had a reason for going rogue because he got some message that the trash cans at the market weren't working. So why bother tagging and plucking the spoiled food from the aisles? And as scientists further unravel this mystery, they may discover a root cause for the breakdown with the lysosomes. Counterintuitively, though, Dr. Glickman has found that UBB plus one, the defective form of the trash removal system, leads to more trips to the lysosome, a process called autophagy. Maybe it's inducing autophagy as an alternative to the ubiquitin system. That makes sense. So it's, it's not inducing it directly, it's inducing it indirectly because the cells sense that the ubiquitin producing system is is uh, impaired. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to isolate, if, if it's possible, in this 3D neural culture, to isolate like a lysosome dysfunction and see if you do like the UBB plus one expression, whether it still results in the alpha and tau. So, yeah. so science is never simple. You, you raise a good question, you, you, you raise the perfect uh, idea and, and science is never simple. Uh, we haven't actually inhibited the lysosome in our system and, and tested uh, what will be the outcome, but we'll do that. A- anything that would help remove the damaged proteins, potentially increasing autophagy, potentially helping the lysosome to work better, uh, oxi- minimizing oxidative stress has got to be a positive thing because 
in the buccinal polysorbate system, most of the enzymes are cysteine-based and are very, very sensitive to oxidative stress. Dr. Glickman won't be the only scientist working on this. Far from it. The future will bring more competition, he says, and that's a good thing. There's clearly things going on. I mean, th- this is where the interest is going to be, and I, can, and, and I know we're going to have a lot of competitors now, and that's fine. That's exactly what we want. I mean, the more people who are getting into this and studying it, the, the better, I, I think. Thanks for checking out the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impacts, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles that explore health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Thanks for reading, listening, and most importantly, thinking about what you find on leaps.org.